turn to 2 Samuel chapter 6, and we are going to look at a passage, at a story, a narrative that I think I can say, maybe not across the board, but for most, when you, the first time you read this, especially if you were a child um, in Sunday school, and sometimes some Sunday school teachers skip over this story in, in the life of David because they're not sure how to apply it. Um, but if you heard it when you were a child, you were probably very confused. And as we hear about this issue of worship and what happened to Uzzah, uh, I just say the name and you know where we're going tonight. Um, as it, it, I remember as a child thinking, well, that's not nice. That doesn't make why would why would God do that? And some and many times as adults we can look at this and say, all right, I, I think I understand, but really was that necessary? And so we're going to take some time, and I'm glad we have a Sunday evening to do this to really examine God's expectations about the Ark of the Covenant, what it represented, and and what's going on here. And be reminded that even though we're thankful that this isn't the norm for today, and there's a reason for that, we're very thankful for, that it still, in a general sense, reminds us that honoring God and worship is very important. And dishonoring God, can we can meet with his displeasure. And we, we, we want to, and that's why we had that whole series done worship right we've gone through many of these things and and you can hopefully have those in mind as we look at this passage but david well-meaning with enthusiasm at the same time doesn't have a full understanding of god's expectations and he ends up and it's not just on him it's on others too but he ends up dishonoring the lord of hosts <laughs> so our theme is going to be worship and our title is dishonoring the lord of hosts tonight and we're going to read this together. But let's go ahead and just read verses 1 through 5. We'll get to the rest later. Chapter 6, 2 Samuel. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from uh, Baal, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of the Lord. And Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and arts and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. It must have been a marvelous procession of worship. But it has a fatal flaw. And we'll see that in just a few minutes. Father, give us understanding tonight in a passage that has, has perplexed many, maybe perplexed many of us, most of us at times, and help us to understand what was going on with this and why this event took place, and also understand what David did to correct it. He took righteous steps to correct it. And it made the worship even more joyful and more enthusiastic. So, Father, through this unique 
episode in David's life, let us see that you do take worship very seriously. That we need to, by your grace, um, accomplish right worship in a right way with hearts that love you, but also with a willingness to submit to your standards and your expectations in our worship. So help us to learn much from this that we can carry out in our personal and, and church-wide worship as well. And this we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask, can one of the boys get me a glass of water? I know the bottled waters aren't available, but do we have something else? Okay, great. All right. So 2 Samuel chapter 6 in verses 1 through 15, and uh, we are introduced again to the Ark of the Covenant uh, after um, not having heard about this for, for quite a while since the beginning of 1 Samuel. And David, for those of you, maybe there's some here that haven't been here on Wednesday nights, although I think most of you have. David's now king of all Israel, and he has made Jerusalem the capital city. It has a strategic location and its centrality to all of Israel, much more central and accessible than Hebron ever was. And God has also, we saw last Wednesday night, weakened the Philistines through David so that they are no longer, and probably you could say, you really could say never again, a serious threat to the nation. A, a, a enemy combatant nation that had plagued Israel for decades, for, for years, maybe hundreds, actually, years. And God through uh, a man after his own heart, a man with a heart for God, David, he now um, eradicates or weakens, leaves uh, this powerful enemy weakened so that they are never able to um, bother Israel the way that they used to. So all of this is God giving David success, and we continue to see this. But David, through all these blessings and all this success, he still has one high priority, and that is still, what is David's highest priority? We're going to see this today, the worship of God by his people. David's priority, his highest priority is that God is exalted, that God is worshipped. And David, and through this, we see that he has a heart, we know that he has a heart for God. And he's well-intended, and he wants to worship God well, and he's got some good ideas. Uh, we haven't heard about the Ark of the Lord, like I said, since the early chapters of 1 Samuel. And if you'll remember, it was left with the priest Eliezer and Kirjith Jerem, small town um, southeast of Jerusalem, and had resided there for over, for probably around 20 years. In fact, let's, let's just turn back there briefly. 1 Samuel 6, just to remind ourselves of this. First Samuel 6. Remember the Philistines got tired pretty quick of that ark after all it was doing to them and sent it back on, back to Israel on a cart. And mark that, by the way, the enemies of Israel sent the ark on a cart. That was not the way that God had prescribed the ark to be carried. But they just wanted it out, and they sent it to um, a Levitical town, Beth Shemesh, 
with priests and men of that were of the tribe of Levi that should have known how to handle the ark of God, and instead they did something that was very dishonoring, that was elementary, that they should have known not to do. They lifted up the lid of the ark and looked in. Well, that was one of the most disrespectful things you could do to the ark, and God had to punish them, and so they sent the ark like the Philistines. Get it out of here. In verse chapter 7, verse 1, the men of Kirjath Jerem came and fetched up the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab in the hill and sanctified Eliezer, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. It came to pass while the ark abode in Kirjath Jerem that the time was long, for it was 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. Ever since then, Israel has desired to have access to the ark of the covenant, the presence of God in a representative sense, to his people. And yet, it still abides at the, at the house of this man, Abinadab. And uh, Eliezer, his son, is one of these that has kept the ark all these years. And David's intention now, he's known about this, and he said, we have a capital city, we have a central location, it's time to bring the ark to Jerusalem. And in a major procession and celebration, he intends to do just that. He wants it to be accessible for the worship of the nation. And he's going to build a, and, and set up a tabernacle, a tent, because they don't have a temple yet. Remember? David has a desire to make a temple, but they don't have that temple yet. But he's going to set up a tabernacle in Jerusalem for the ark to be carried. And so the people can worship the uh, and worship God, not worship the ark, but worship God with the ark in its place. Um, in a more central location. So, obviously, this is a good thing, right? And David has the best of intentions. But unfortunately and precariously, he doesn't have a proper knowledge of God's expectations for worship. Because of that, catastrophe is going to result. David knows a lot. And it's almost surprising that he has somehow missed this or forgotten this. But he's missed a very important expectation that God had in the worship of his people. And it's going to have some devastating results. So warnings here today. The first one is refrain from well-intentioned errors in worship. And that is, even as we worship God in a well-intentioned way, if we don't follow and know God's word well and his expectations about worship, and this should be no surprise, we've seen this in the worship series, then we could very much, very well dishonor God, even though that's not our intention to do. And David is going to see that happen with Israel here. First of all, be careful to worship by God's standards. And that sense of carefulness is not apparent here in the midst of well intentions. Look at uh, back to 2 Samuel chapter 6 and verse 1. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. That's a lot of people, by the way. And some people question, well, is that, you know, is that the real number? Do we understand that? And yeah, it's 30,000 in, in a Hebrew sense. It's a large group. What would this include? Why would David need so many people to go get the ark? Well, you think about, about the type of people that would be involved. He would certainly need priests, right? He would need worship leaders. They could lead the music, and he would need military forces to protect the ark. I mean, the Philistines have already shown a capacity to stealing the ark and taking it. 
So he wants security and protection for the ark. So you can imagine a good-sized group of people. And remember, Israel is a large nation from the standpoint of, of how many people um, that live in the numbers of people. So David has a very large group representative of all of Israel and the leaders and the priests, and the worship leaders and all these 30,000 that they all, maybe they met together in Jerusalem and David arose verse two and went with all the people who were with him to Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God. Now you might, if you were paying close attention, we read from first Samuel six, you might say, well, pastor Brock, it was actually in Kirjith Jerem. Well, it seems as, as, as is the case in many towns and places Ancient Israel were two names for this town. This seems to be a, an alternate name. And Abinadab is mentioned again, so we know it's the same place. And so David is now going to bring up the Ark of God to Jerusalem. Great idea. Everybody's excited. But the author reminds us of the seriousness and the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. He says, the Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts, who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Um, the ark, let's talk a little bit about the ark of God here. It's important enough for David. It's an important part of worship, but let's remind ourselves why was this so important. And we're going to look at a number of passages of scripture here, but basically in a general sense, the ark represented the presence of God among his people. Not in, in, in another sense, God's everywhere, right? He's omnipresent. But it was the symbol of God's presence, and God literally said that his presence would be with the ark and the tabernacle uh, behind the curtain. And since that represented his presence, God had given clear instructions in the law about how to handle with honor and respect. In fact, let's go to Exodus 25 briefly. Um, a large, a long passage here that we'll just read through so you can see God was very clear and gave a lot of instructions about this Ark of the Covenant, how the people were supposed to handle it. Exodus 25, verse 10. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it, and you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. And you shall cast four rings of gold for it, and put them on its four feet. Two rings on the one side of it, and two rings on the other side of it. You shall make poles of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark, and carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark, they shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold, of hammered work. You shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other. Of one piece with the mercy seat, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall Faces one to another toward the mercy seat shall the faces of the cherubim, and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark, you shall put the testimony. Mercy seat is this lid with these cherubim, and really, the, the Hebrew here is um, 
the, the dwelling between or in the midst of the cherubim. So God is saying, in a representative sense, his presence will be at this aspect of the ark of the Lord, the ark of the covenant. And he says, verse 22, there I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment to the people of Israel. All right, that's pretty clear, right? And that's a lot of instruction that God gave to them to emphasize the importance of the Ark of the Covenant. And so this was well known. This was one of, if you can say it this way, this is one of the basic things about worship that God was very clear about. And let me just read further. I know we're going to, we're getting to a lot of scripture here all of a sudden, but this is all background for this. You could turn to Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. And the placement of the ark within the temple or the tabernacle. And what was in the ark, the author of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 9, 1 through 5. Now, even the first covenant, covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared, the first section, which were the lampstand and the table and the bread of the presence, is called the holy place. But behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold, in which was a golden urn holding the manna. This is what is inside the Ark, and Aaron's staff that budded, and the tablets of the covenant, God's word, the Ten Commandments of both, and the tablets of the law. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things we cannot now speak in more details. So that's just a reminder to us of what the ark represented and what it included and, and even how it looked. And the author then, if we go back to 2 Samuel 6, reminds us that the ark of God was called by the name of the Lord of hosts. That has a picture that the ark was sanctified by the Lord of hosts himself. And that Lord of hosts is a significant title that's used in these books, in the life of David, meaning that he is Lord of all armies, both heavenly and earthly. The Lord God is Lord over all. He's in charge of all of those armies. And he's the one that sanctified this particular ark to represent his presence. Now, there's a very positive aspect of this. Why would God do this? Why would he just um, make a, a really nice box, if I can put it that way, and have these angels at the top to represent his presence? Well, if you remember, if you've studied anything about uh, pagan religion at the time that the Israelites, God brought them together, they would worship pagan gods that were considered far removed from the people. In pagan worship, you had to do all kinds of crazy things to get their attention because they were never close by. And God's point in this is my presence is with my people. It's here. It's something tangible, even though I'm spirit. My presence in this ark represents that unlike those pagan religions, I am very close to my people. That's the purpose of this. In worship, he is close to them. And then the few, like Moses and the, and, and the uh, chief priests and those that were allowed into the Holy of Holies that were privileged to be in the actual presence of the ark, they, they were actually, God, it talks about God's presence being there, and they were to address that 
placed at the top of the Ark of the Covenant as God's presence, and God, what they would expect his presence, and he would communicate with them. To have Moses, God communicating with Moses in the Holy of Holies uh, many times as he's addressing and looking at the Ark of the Covenant. At the same time, even though that represented God's presence with his people, they had to be very um, careful and respectful and reverent of that. You couldn't just walk in, right? We all know that. I don't have to go through all the details. What would happen if somebody just walked into the Holy of Holies? Well, they wouldn't live very long after that. It was not a common presence. God had statutes for those who would enter his presence. Here we have verse 3. Then let's contrast that with how David reacts with the Ark of the Covenant. Verse 3, and they carried the Ark of God, not as they were supposed to, as the law intended, but on a new cart. They made a very nice cart, I'm sure. It looked very nice, very regal. They put it on this new cart, and they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. But do you realize, does that sound familiar to you? The Philistines made a cart and brought the Ark of the Covenant. David is treating the Ark of the Covenant as almost as common as the Philistines. The Ark of the Covenant. Almost as common as the Philistines treated the Ark. So there's something very amiss here. So first of all, we need to be careful to worship by God's standards. And David, in making this new cart and the instability involved in this, compared to God's expectations about how it should be carried. And we'll look at that uh, more in just a few minutes as well. Let's continue on here in verse 6. We need. We also see here that there's a warning against violating God's worship standards. Verse 6, and when they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Now they came to a point of unevenness, and these threshing floors was where they would thresh the grain, and, and they would um, beat the grain, and the, the good kernels would fall, and the um, refuse, the, the rest of the unwanted um, cult, or hull, um, the kernel would fall, the hull would be blown away, and it seems like they had to cross this or something, and it made the ark very unstable as it was in this cart. And all Uzzah did, he saw this. He saw probably the ark about ready to fall out. Oh, no. And he puts out his hand to steady it, right? Except for one thing. In doing that, he violated some more of God's clear commandments. Let me just read to you from the book of Numbers. Numbers 4.15. When Aaron and his sons have finished covering the sanctuary and all the furnishings of the sanctuary as the camp sets out, after that, the sons of Kohath shall come to carry these, but they must not touch the holy things. They're supposed to carry them, but be careful. Even those priests, as they're carrying these things, don't touch them lest they die. These are the things of the tent of the meeting that the sons of Kohath are to carry. So God said, very clearly, don't touch these things. It's my presence. And he also said in Numbers 7, 5 through 9, they were given, Israel was given a gift of wagons, and Moses asked God what to do with them, and they were to be used by the Levites. Moses took the wagons and the oxen and gave them to the Levites, two wagons and four oxen. 
But to the sons of Kohath, he gave none. He didn't give them any wagons because they were charged with the service of the holy things that had to be carried on the shoulder. And Moses basically said to those men that are carrying the Ark of the Covenant, don't give them any wagons. There are no carts, nothing like that, because they are supposed to hold on with the poles and secure the Ark of the Covenant. So we are sure that nothing bad happens to the Ark. And folks, these aren't obscure warnings. These are right in God's law, very easily accessible. How did David miss these things? I don't know. I can't tell you. Did it neglect? Well, he knew a lot about God's law. You know, I don't think it was just David, by the way. There were a lot of Levites that had taken care of the Ark of the Covenant for 20 years in Kirjath Jerem. And some of these, these men, including um, Uzzah and um, Ahio, were sons of these priests that had taken care. These Levitical priests had some responsibility to teach David and the people how to handle the ark with care. It doesn't seem like they said anything at all. So there seems to be a real disconnect, even with the spiritual leadership in Israel, about how to worship and how to handle the things of God. They don't know, or they're not instructing others in the way that they're supposed to. So these spiritual leaders aren't instructing David and others, and David doesn't have a knowledge that really he should have had. And all of this uh, culminates together into Uzzah and his actions, although unintentional, well-meaning. We can understand why he would want to study the ark. But he broke one of the most basic of God's worship commandments, that we must treat God's glory with reverence and honor. Um, Take a little further on this even. All he did was touch the ark. But think about Moses and his interactions with God. Even Moses, as he wanted to see God, was not allowed to actually touch God. But remember, God gave him a vision of only his back. He wasn't able to see the full representation of God. And even Moses himself had to be careful. Remember how God told him that if you saw all of my glory, that you would die? Well, certainly, if that's for one of Israel's most famous leaders, someone like Uzzah is also going to be at risk as well. If he's not reverent and honoring God in this way, and you think, well, I'm so glad that God doesn't handle things this way today, the way he did back then. And did we read, we read the end of this verse? Let's continue. Verse 7, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there before the ark of God. This man goes to steady this ark, and he immediately, God strikes him dead, and you can imagine the midst of the celebrating and all of this excitement, and all of a sudden, this man just falls off the cart and falls dead before the feet. Maybe he's near David. And what David must have felt like at that point. Also, embarrassment, I think, even, a little bit. Why would, why would God allow this to happen? And again, I was thinking, aren't we glad today that God doesn't, if I can put this way, operate in this way? That we have access to God in his presence through prayer because what Jesus did for us, right? 
But folks, do you remember what Jesus had to do in order for us to have that kind of access? Remember how the curtain was torn in two at the death of Christ, and we were allowed access into the Holy of Holies, but it required the death of the Son of God. That's really serious. And so this thing that Uzzah did is very serious as well. He, he broached, he offended, he broke one of God's basic expectations. He did not treat it with reverence and honor. Now, how does David respond to this? Well, he's not very happy, verse 8. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. Understandably, David's initial response is one of anger. I think here it's probably directed toward God. And it would be a very human response. We tend to, if we don't have the full understanding of what God's doing here, get a little frustrated and miffed ourselves. Really, God, this has to happen this way? But this is a response of one that does not fully appreciate the need to honor God in the way that God requires and I'm sure this was grievous and also embarrassing. David had gotten all this together. He had 30,000 people around him. All of a sudden, this man dies, and it's obvious why he did it. And David was in control of all this, and David's angry. That was his initial wrong response. But then David gets the point, I think, the more reflection he does on this in verse 9, then he has the right response. The second response is more appropriate. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? How can I bring it to me in Jerusalem? Here we have a more appropriate response, fear and respect of God. That is the right question to ask at this point. Yes, how should that be done, David? There are um, really clear commandments on how that should be done. And maybe you need to stop and take a moment and find out what's wrong. And that's exactly what he does. He takes the time. He halts a procession, procession and he leaves the ark nearby until he has a fuller understanding of what's going on, of the problem. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Just take it somewhere nearby or um Probably there were some Levitical priests here who could watch over it. Obed-Edom might have been connected with the Levites. They might have left some of the priests there to watch um, the, over the ark. And David is not going to take any more chances at this point. He understands that God is trying to get his attention, that somehow or another he has violated God's worship standards, and he needs to take more time. Well, folks, again, if I can go back to this, aren't we glad that God doesn't operate this way today. But the reason he does is because Jesus took all of the wrath and died for us so that we could have access to God. But even though we have that, and we need to thank God for that access that we had, that none of the Old Testament saints enjoyed, we still need to remember that, that worship is a serious thing to God. And though he doesn't operate in this way, there is a general principle for us to certainly be careful as we worship. And that's why we went through a whole worship series. And we talked about preparing before the day of worship. And we talked about the importance of prayer, the importance of music, make sure that our music is pure before God. And our giving is, is generous and um, um, rightly motivated before God. 
and that the preaching, that we're listening and learning about God's word, God is serious about worship. And that's certainly a general principle that we can take from this. At the same time, thanking the Lord, what a blessing it is to have access to the whole. We don't need an Ark of the Covenant anymore. I don't know if we're going to find that thing, by the way. A lot of people would like to. Maybe it will appear, maybe Jesus is the one that will bring it back. It'll be in, in some sense in the future. We don't know. The last that's heard of the Ark of the Covenant is in Chronicles, King Josiah. It's mentioned that he places it in, the, in the, um, Solomon's temple that was built. That's really the last we hear of it. Perhaps uh, Nebuchadnezzar and the, the Babylonian armies, armies destroyed it, took it, buried it. We don't know for sure. It's not important for us today. We don't have to worship the Ark of the Covenant, but it was God's expectation back then. And the point is, we need to be aware of God's expectations for our worship today. Well, look what happens when David finds out the right way, what well-intentioned but honoring worship is. Look at the blessings that are involved in contrast to this awful story. Let's look at verse 11. We're going to rejoice in well-intentioned and honoring worship. And we see here joy in the blessings of worship. And the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of the Lord, excuse me, remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the Ark of God. And although this doesn't say this specifically, I think this shows that the Ark of the Covenant was being honored and taken care of in the way that it was supposed to while it was there in the house of Obed-Edom. And God was blessing these people because they were treating and giving it proper respect, like that should have been happening all along. David hears a report of this, and now he's encouraged. Let's continue the processional, but let's do it this time in a way that honors God in an appropriate manner. And it seems as if now he has taken the time to find out what that is. And so they can rejoice in the blessings that God is giving of worship, but also in bright demonstrations of worship. When we do worship, when we complete worship that is honoring the God, folks, it is encouraging and it brings joy and it brings enthusiastic excitement and energy. All, all of these things when it's done in a right way. And so verse 13, okay, at the end of verse 12, so David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Because verse 13, now he knows that they're doing it in the right way. And when those who bore the ark, that has the idea of those that were carrying the ark on the poles like they were supposed to at the beginning, and they had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. And so David is offering multiple sacrifices at specific intervals. There seems to be evidence that this was a correct way to do this as the ark was being carried, offering up sacrifices. And David's even more joyful and exuberant now because he knows that he has God's blessing because he's honoring God in the way that God expected. And so look at this. Um, Verse 14, this verse that we've probably heard many times, and David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen, a linen ephod. This is most likely this linen ephod 
was the garment of the priest, the inner garment. And David is wearing this and he's dancing. Well, what are we supposed to take from this? Well, unfortunately, there are many that have looked at this um, in Christian circles and said, see, the reason this is in the Bible is to show us that God approves of dancing. All right. Well, that's a real um, shallow understanding of this. And to apply it in that way, that obviously misses the mark entirely. The whole purpose of this is to show David's excitement and energy. And what is this dancing anyway? Well, it's typical Jewish dancing that would have taken place at that time. I don't know if you've ever seen this or seen documentaries, that kind of thing, but it's a whirling and a twirling. I don't know if you've ever been to a sight and sound production. I know some of you have, and there's some really good aspects to that. Those people and, and the production that they put on are amazing. And there are some aspects that I'm not quite as excited about when it comes to some of those. But one of the things that, that they, I think they get very accurately is I've seen them perform this type of dancing, this Jewish whirling and twirling, and it's energetic. And they have the ladies have uh, these long flowing robes and these long uh, streamers and everything. And it really is a good picture of this type of dancing. There's nothing sensual about it is my point. Um, this isn't an excuse for us today to be able to be involved in sensual dancing. That misses the whole point, and that's not why it's in the Bible. It wasn't that kind of dancing at all. But the point is, is that David is now worshiping God in the right way, and it brings more joy and energy and excitement, even to his own worship. And so he does it in this way. And verse, and, and then this translates as well to the whole house of Israel. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. And that must have been a wonderful experience. Folks, when we worship God in a way that we know and are convinced are right ways, in ways that are honoring to him, there ought to be a sense of joy. Now, we don't have the whirling and twirling and things like that in our worship service. And, and we... we we want to take it seriously. We want to reverence and show respect for God. But folks, really, there ought to be that kind of excitement in our hearts. Oh, we're worshiping God. This, this is a demonstration for us of the excitement and the expectation. We get to worship God today. Do we come Sunday mornings prepared with this kind of heart excitement to worship God? Even in the Knox building in Northern Ware, New Hampshire? Well, we should. We should have this kind of enthusiasm for worshiping God, as David did, because it's worship done in a right way, in honoring to God. Now, there is another question here that we'll answer uh, probably next week. Well, you know, let, let me just point this out real quick. we got a few minutes here. David, offering up sacrifices, wearing the priestly linen ephod. Is that bother anybody with what we've read in the past in the story of Saul and David? Any problems? Any, any concerns with that? What happened to Saul when he performed some of the duties of the priest? Well, he got in big trouble. Samuel, of course, Samuel said directly, Saul, don't do that. So it was direct disobedience against God's command that Samuel wasn't here. But at the same time, why does David get away with some of these things that are clearly aspects of the priesthood? Um, 
it does seem as if God allows David to act with part of the responsibilities that a priest would have. And we're not totally clear about why that is, but there are some traditions of things that fit into this that make, I think, make good sense. Uh, do you remember all the way back in Genesis, we had that mentioned this morning, a guy named Melchizedek and how he was the priest of God? Where was Melchizedek, priest in what city? Salem, which was the eventual ancient city, which eventually became Jerusalem. And there seems that there was a tradition that the person that would conquer this city would take the place. Melchizedek was not in the lineage of, of the Levitic priesthood or Aaron. He was a separate line of priests. And the thought is somehow with David being involved in conquering Jerusalem, that God allowed him to be a part of that Melchizedek line. Could be. Makes sense. There's also an aspect, too, that uh, because David was faithful in carrying out God's uh, commandment and getting rid of the enemy out of Jerusalem, that he then, being the one that had conquered, and it was his initiative that God allowed him also as well, since it was called the city of David, to lead the worship as well. I think these are two viable, possible explanations for why David was allowed to do this. God obviously allowed David to be involved in some things that he did not allow Saul and some of the other kings to be involved in. We see Solomon, though, as well involved in worship. Somehow these two men, God allowed them to be leaders in worship that were able to do some of these same things. But the point in this is, regardless of all that, is David now realizes and he has a better understanding that God really means it when he says he wants worship done in the right way. And God expects us to honor him and follow his standards today as well. Not in offering up a sacrifice every few miles that we travel or whatever. That's not the point. That's not what we do today. But certainly making sure that the worship that we offer him on Sunday mornings especially is pure, is right, and is honoring and is not focused on our likes and dislikes, but what is focused on what God's expectations are. David learned that the hard way. And we can learn from that and apply those things and honor God. We can honor the Lord of hosts in our worship instead of dishonoring him in this way. Father, help us to, again, learn much from this incident in David's life. Lord, well-meaning people can still sin and dishonor you when it comes to worship. And we see that very apparent here with poor Uzzah. At the same time, Lord, help us to know your word well. That's why you gave us your word, is to know it well. So that we can know how your expectations of worship and deliver and by your grace give you the right worship that you deserve. Not what we want, but what you deserve. Help us to learn to do that continually better and learn from this example in David's life that when we follow right worship, the worship is even sweeter and more joyful and more exciting to know that we are being obedient to you and honoring you. Help us to do that well as a church family together. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.